The strange but true story featured on this podcast contains details some people may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Chaya Samuel and things are about to get weird. Hello, welcome to episode 22 of Things Are About To Get Weird. If you're a regular listener, you'll know the drill by now, but if this is your first time here, I am so glad you stumbled across this podcast. Every Wednesday, I tell you a different strange but true story and cover everything from unexplained phenomena to unsolved mysteries and bizarre true crime stories, with a whole host of other topics sprinkled in along the way too. I'm one of those people who has been fascinated by weird tales since I was a kid, and when I'd sit there flicking through my collection of books on strange incidents from around the world, I would feel like there'd always be at least one story in the compilation about a prison break, and they would completely hook me in. There's definitely something about the thought of someone escaping from what's meant to be one of the most secure places imaginable, and the methods that they use to do so, that I can't help but be enthralled by. I'm sure I'm not alone, especially when you consider things like The Shawshank Redemption being the highest rated film of all time on IMDb, and Prison Break being so huge when it came out in the mid-2000s. And all of this leads me neatly to the topic of today's episode. I'm going to be telling you all about the Alcatraz escape, or as some people may say, attempted escape, of June 1962. And the reason for the ambiguity is because there is a very odd unsolved element to this tale that in my mind takes it to the level of being really quite weird. If at any point you're thinking, Chayaz, this sounds like a wild but not especially odd prison break story, then just you wait because some of the strangest things about this story happen years after the actual incident. Now, I'm not sure if anyone else had a strange phase as a teenager of being majorly interested in Alcatraz prison, but I seem to have a vague memory of either myself or my sister wearing an orange hoodie with some kind of Alcatraz motif on it at one point. But in case you didn't have this phase, fear not, as I'm going to kick off the story with a little bite-sized history lesson about this notorious facility. Alcatraz Island, also known as The Rock, is located in San Francisco, Bay, which is, of course, in the US state of California. Although it's best known for being a former federal prison, before it was ever home to civilian convicted criminals, it was actually a military prison, as well as the site of the very first lighthouse on the US's Pacific shores. Because of its location being around 1.25 miles, or just over two kilometres offshore, and its irregular shape and lack of many suitable places to dock a boat, historians believe it wasn't of much interest to anyone until around the mid-1800s. In 1850, following the Mexican-American War, President Fillmore decided that the island's owner, US Senator John C. Fremont, did not have the authority to purchase Alcatraz when he did, as he'd done so in the name of the United States, even though he wasn't authorised to do so. Therefore, the president declared that it was the property of the federal government. That is a very simplified version of the story, but for the purposes of our episode, that is the long and the short of how Alcatraz Island ended up 
eventually becoming designated as a military reservation and prison. It wasn't actually until 1934 that the rock was re-fortified and transformed into the infamous maximum security penitentiary that we think of when someone says the name Alcatraz. Now, these extra security measures included everything from toolproof, incredibly tough iron bars, rigorous checks of prisoners by staff, which happened multiple times per day, major restrictions of the movements of inmates within the facility, guard towers positioned at the most optimal locations, and of course, the strictest rules of any prison out there. I mean, when it was housing criminals as dangerous and uncontrollable as Al Capone and George Machine Gun Kelly, not to be confused with the musician, of course, not a single chance could be taken when it came to keeping them contained. The Federal Bureau of Prisons described Alcatraz as the place to, quote, show the law-abiding public that the federal government was serious about stopping the rampant crime of the 1920s and 1930s, noting that it was designed for prisoners who refused to conform to the rules and regulations at other federal institutions, who were considered violent and dangerous, or who were considered escape risks. And the location of the island itself certainly helped with this mission. I was lucky enough to visit San Francisco back in 2007, and although on that trip we didn't visit Alcatraz Island itself, we did go on a boat trip where we sailed right around the perimeter of the rock. It's difficult to explain how intimidating the prison looks in the morning mist that so often hangs over the city. If you've ever experienced it, you'll know what I mean when I say it feels like a grey blanket is draped over everything. It's pretty eerie, but it's also quite cool. The rocks on parts of the island are jagged and the old prison buildings look pretty brutal. Combine all of that with the fact that it can get quite chilly in San Francisco, the climate is very different from other warmer parts of California, and you realise why people question the likelihood of a successful escape from the island. But did that mean that between its opening in 1934 and eventual decommissioning in 1963 that no one attempted it? Of course they attempted it. Allow me to introduce you to the three men who were part of perhaps the most famous Alcatraz escape, which took place between the 11th and 12th of June 1962. John Anglin, Clarence Anglin, and Frank Morris. Frank was the first of the three to arrive at Alcatraz. He was convicted of various crimes, including bank robbery and burglary, but it seems to be his reputation for trying to escape whichever prison he was housed in that landed him on the island. Frank had had, by all accounts, a pretty terrible upbringing. He had been abandoned by his parents as a child and spent the following years moving from one foster home to another, and at the age of just 13, he was convicted of his first crime. This is something that would sadly follow him into adulthood, only now he was no longer being sent to facilities that aimed to help troubled teenagers, but huge, strict and often dangerous prisons. It's widely noted that Frank was a very intelligent man, and his brilliant mind is what aided him in his escape attempts from the prisons he found himself locked up in time and time again. 
By 1960, federal officials were sick of Frank's escapades, and after recapturing him a year after he'd escaped from Louisiana State Penitentiary, they decided it was time to send him to the one institution he would not be able to abscond from. In the January of 1960, Frank Morris arrived at Alcatraz and was given the prisoner number AZ1441. Whilst Frank was busy familiarising himself with his new surroundings, down in the southern US state of Georgia, two brothers were embroiled in a series of escape attempts from the federal penitentiary of Atlanta. Clarence and John Anglin had originally been convicted of bank robbery along with their brother Alfred, and apparently they were not keen on spending the rest of their 35-year sentences behind bars. After multiple failed escapes, officials decided that these two brothers were simply too much for the facility to handle, and that they should be sent off to Alcatraz to carry out the remainder of their time in the prison system. And it's here that we have our first little strange but true moment of this story, as it turns out that the brothers had a friend waiting for them on the rock, a fellow escape enthusiast who they had served time with in Atlanta. It was, of course, Mr. Frank Morris. John Anglin was the first of the pair to arrive at Alcatraz in October of 1960, followed by Clarence a few months later in January of 1961. Now, according to the FBI website, the three were assigned to adjoining or adjacent cells, which I think is pretty astonishing. I have no idea whether my viewpoint has any factual basis, but I always imagined that inmates who had a prior connection to one another would be placed as far away from each other as possible in the prison, especially considering that Clarence and John had not only committed their crime together, but had both tried to escape from their previous prison too, but for whatever reason, they seemed to be placed in nearby cells in Alcatraz. At this point, I'll also introduce you to a fourth man named Alan West, who had been sent to the island in 1957. Strangely enough, he also knew John Anglin from a previous prison, this time a facility in Florida, and occupied the cell adjacent to Frank Morris. While sources do tend to differ when it comes to describing their exact cell locations, we know that they were neighbours for all intents and purposes. So, with all four men in such close proximity, and given their apparent reluctance to remain in one place for very long, even if that place does have the reputation for being the world's most secure prison, they began to hatch a plan that they hoped would see them being the first men to successfully break out of Alcatraz. So, picture this, you're a prison guard at Alcatraz about to make your usual early morning bed checks. The date is the 12th of June, 1962, and as you move from cell to cell, shining your torch into each one to check on the inmate, you spot something that doesn't look quite right. At first glance, the cell you're peering into appears to be occupied by a sleeping prisoner in his bed, his head resting on his pillow. Only, as your eyes adjust, you realise you're not looking at a human head at all. Entering the cell, you approach the bed, pull back the sheets, and immediately realise that your hunch was correct. 
bar a false head made from a crude mixture of plaster, flesh-toned paint and real human hair, the bed is empty and the inmate is nowhere to be seen. The dummy head was enough to fool the night guard, but as daylight approaches, the truth could not hide any longer. You dash from the cell to raise the alarm, only to find that this same chilling scene is to be found in two further nearby cells. The warden is alerted, confirming with his own eyes that the cells are indeed uninhabited, and he contacts the police, FBI and military to make them aware that three criminals, John Anglin, his brother Clarence and their old friend Frank Morris, are missing from Alcatraz. There was not a single moment wasted in trying to find the three men. Naturally, the prison went into lockdown and all efforts were focused on not only trying to apprehend the trio, but work out how on earth they had all managed to escape from their iron bar clad cells undetected in the middle of the night. As the authorities started to piece together what had taken place between patrols that night, they began to unravel a plan so complex and so clever that it would one day inspire a Hollywood movie, multiple television dramas and numerous books. In the days following the escape, the FBI, together with other groups including the Bureau of Prison Authorities, established several crucial facts. One of those being that the three inmates had indeed vanished. There was no trace of them anywhere in the prison, nor in the water surrounding the island, and no sightings of them had been made on the nearby land. Another fact was that the group of three should have been four. Alan West knew that there was simply too much evidence pointing to his own attempted escape alongside his friends, and he held up his hands and cooperated fully with the FBI, providing them information with the understanding that he would not be charged in the case. The details that came to light are nothing short of mind-boggling. The escapees' plans had been set into motion six months previously, in December of 1961, when the group came across some old saw blades. This sparked an idea in them which would involve somehow carving out the section of wall that surrounded the air vent in each of their cells. This was in order to crawl through it and access the unmonitored and unguarded utility corridor which lay beyond. But they were going to need far more than a couple of saw blades if their plan was ever going to get off the ground. The men started to collect items like spoons from the dining hall and would fashion them into makeshift tools to help widen the ventilator holes and loosen the grills, which were located under the sink in each of their cells. But the plan was taken to a whole new level when Alan West discovered that the prison's vacuum cleaner had recently broken. He asked to be allowed to try and repair it, and after taking the machine apart, he realised it had two motors. Somehow, he was able to remove one of the motors and put it to one side, whilst also fixing the vacuum using the one remaining motor. So, as far as the guards were concerned, there was nothing to be suspicious of. After sneaking the spare motor out of the workshop, Alan presented it to Frank and the Anglin brothers, and the men realised that if they could use it to create a kind of crude drill, their escape routes through the vents could be forged far quicker. The group came up with a system that would allow them to pursue their tasks without constantly worrying that their plans would be rumbled by the guards. They'd work in alternating shifts. The brothers would take turns using their tools on the wall whilst the other would keep a lookout. 
and Frank and Alan would do the same for one another too. By May of 1962, both the Anglin brothers and Frank Morris had managed to finish their escape hatches and would disguise the damage done to the wall and the vent with fake grills made from papier-mâché. The three men now made a regular nighttime habit of going through the vent and into the unguarded corridor behind, using anything from a suitcase to a piece of cardboard to block the hole in the wall whilst they were gone, and they actually set up a secret workshop in a space above their cell block which they accessed via the corridor. At the same time, Alan West had not finished his own tunnel through his ventilation grill. He had been busy working on a couple of other tasks which would be vital to their escape. Using raincoats, the group had either stolen or been given by other inmates to create the makeshift life preservers they would need after entering the treacherous water around the island, as well as wooden paddles to use alongside the large raft John Anglin had been hard at work constructing in their clandestine workshop above the cell block. The Anglin brothers had also been busy creating the dummy heads, which they made from a kind of cement-like powder plus pretty much anything else they could find, including things like soap and toilet paper. They stole the flesh-coloured paint for the heads from the prison's art kits and the hair from the barbershop, and I have to say that the finished results were pretty impressive. I'll be sure to put a photo of one of the actual heads on our Instagram page. They actually did a pretty great job considering what they had access to. And to be honest, that same sentiment applies to everything else they created too. Over the months that the group was preparing for their escape attempt, they used everything from an accordion, as in the musical instrument, to act as the raft inflator, to electric clippers from the barbershop to form part of the drill I mentioned earlier. Not to mention the periscope-like device they constructed to keep watch as they headed to their workshop beyond the corridor. But all of these tools and the routes that they'd created out of their cells would be useless if the group couldn't find a way out of the wider prison cell block building. So the Anglin brothers and Frank Morris used a good portion of the time they spent in their workshop figuring out how to navigate the 30-foot or just over 9-metre climb to the ceiling vent, which they hoped to pry open and climb through to freedom. Eventually, they managed to work out how to use the network of pipes in the space as steps up to the ceiling vent, and after finally managing to get it open wide enough to exit through, they propped it ajar with a bolt made from soap. As far as the trio were concerned, their plan was ready to be put into motion. Alan West's lack of progress on his cell's ventilation grill tunnel was their final obstacle, but on the night of the 11th of June, they felt they could wait no longer. It was showtime. Soon after the lights were turned out in the cell block around 9.30pm, Frank Morris headed to their workshop to fetch the dummy heads as a signal that the plan was about to begin. Frank was able to pass or throw the decoy heads to his friends, who arranged them in their beds before squeezing through the ventilation tunnels for the final time. Clarence Anglin came up with a plan to ensure they didn't leave Alan West behind, but it was risky. Once he was successfully in the corridor, he located the back of Alan's cell and attempted to kick through the wall, which had been weakened by the work Alan had managed to do, but it became clear that it simply was not going to work. Knowing that time was not on their side, he reluctantly admitted defeat 
Alan was not going to be leaving Alcatraz that night. What the three men did next was pieced together by investigators along with Alan's knowledge of their plan. After climbing up the various pipes and through the ceiling ventilator, it's believed that they made the terrifying journey across the rooftop, which would have been around 100 feet or 30 metres across. According to the FBI website, the remainder of their expedition to leave the island would have looked something like this. They would have shimmied down the bakery smokestack located at the rear of the cell house, climbed over the fence, creeped undetected to the northeast shore of the island and launched their raft. Although Alan did eventually manage to complete the tunnel out of his cell that night, he was far too late. His friends were long gone. But where to? No one knows. After that night, neither the Anglin brothers nor Frank Morris were ever seen again. Or were they? Now, if the details of their Alcatraz prison break weren't tantalising enough, here's where things get even more intriguing. Now, clearly, the fact that the three men disappeared following the escape leaves us with a number of possibilities. Number one, that they drowned and their bodies were simply never washed up. Two, that they made it to dry land and successfully vanished in line with their plan. Or three, that they were rescued by an outside accomplice from the water, which explains why they weren't sighted in San Francisco after their escape, despite the FBI putting out alerts. And let's begin with the FBI's thoughts on the matter. After investigating for several years, the Bureau officially closed its investigation into the case on the 31st of December 1979, concluding that the men likely did not survive the crossing from Alcatraz Island to the mainland. They say this is for a number of reasons. Firstly, the fact that there were strong winds and ice-cold water conditions on the night. Secondly, because there was never any evidence of the men carrying out the stages of their post-escape plan as described to the FBI by Allen, including a string of clothing and car thefts they had planned on carrying out. And finally, the fact that none of the men had any family or friends who would have had the financial means to help them in their escape by, for example, hiring a boat which could have feasibly cost thousands of dollars. Although many people have argued that the fact the men's bodies were never washed up means that they could well be alive, the Bureau thought it was more likely that a strong current in the San Francisco Bay had carried them out to sea. They did report finding several items linked to the men in and around the water following their escape, including a packet of letters sealed in rubber, some paddle-like pieces of wood, bits of rubber in a tube, and a homemade life vest washed up on a nearby beach. So, although the FBI handed the case over to the US Marshal Service, on the off chance that the men were still alive, they themselves seemed to consider the matter over and done with. However, certain members of the Anglin brothers' family are convinced that their relatives made it safely off the island and were successful in their escape from Alcatraz. An article from the Independent newspaper details the occasion in 2015 when two of John and Clarence Anglin's nephews, Ken and David Widner, were involved in a special History Channel documentary. In the show, they unveiled a photograph of what their family believe is John and Clarence in Brazil in 1975. 
Ken and David said the photograph was taken by a family friend named Fred Britzy and was handed to their mother in 1992. Ken is quoted in The Independent as saying, I believe it was a way for them to let the family know, hey, we did make it, we're okay, we didn't die, but we can't come home. Several experts have assessed the photo and compared it to John and Clarence's inmate photographs. And although many say it's impossible to conclude whether it does show the two escapees as they are wearing sunglasses, one found the image more compelling. Forensic imaging expert Michael W. Streed explains that he sees, quote, more that's similar than I see that's dissimilar. In other words, the similarities between verified images of the two men and this 1975 photo are significant. Within the History Channel special, a voice recording of Fred Britzy, who took the photo, is played, in which he says, Nobody positively, absolutely knows they're alive, really, but me. And that's not all. In a December 1993 article from the Aniston Star newspaper, which is a daily paper based in Alabama, one of John and Clarence's brothers described how the family would receive unsigned postcards and Christmas cards and is quoted as saying, Once a card came signed Jerry and another Jerry and Joe. He also described how the phone would sometimes ring and all they could hear was breathing on the other end. Most suspiciously of all, in my opinion, he also noted the occasion of their father's funeral, when two strangers with beards turned up at the funeral home and wept in front of the casket before quickly leaving. Very, very strange. Over the years, there have been numerous other alleged sightings of the three men. I actually found some partially redacted FBI documents, which detail a decent number of these reported interactions. One report from 1967 noted that a man in Maryland had spotted a person he believed to be Frank Morris around 7am one morning in February. And the reason he could be so sure it was Frank, despite the random location of the sighting, was because they had known one another for over 30 years. The man claimed he'd been at school with Frank and had also served time with him in prison, and for this reason, he refused to provide further details relating to his own identity. When pushed for this personal information, he hung up the phone, but not before he'd confirmed that he was positive that the man he'd seen that morning was Frank. And there are dozens and dozens more reports like this relating to both Frank and the Anglin brothers, as well as multiple apparent confessions from people who allegedly helped with elements of the trio's escape on the outside but none of these have ever been proven authentic in the eyes of the authorities. In more recent years, the focus seems to have moved away from trying to work out where the escapees could be, given that if they were still alive, they'd all be in their 90s. Instead, it's been more about trying to work out the likelihood that the men did survive their journey from the rock to the mainland. 
For example, in a 2003 Mythbusters episode, an experiment was carried out that replicated the journey as accurately as possible. The team built a raft out of the same materials the escapees would have used, wore the same clothing the prisoners would have worn, and set out at the same time of year and in the same conditions that were found on that night back in 1962. They ended up successfully making the journey to dry land in around 45 minutes with relative ease, which served as a stark contradiction to the FBI's view that their survival would have been unlikely. But then again, for every piece of evidence that makes you think the men really could have escaped and disappeared from the United States to somewhere like Brazil, another nugget of information pops up to make you question everything once again. For example, on the 17th of July 1962, just over a month after the escape, a Norwegian freighter ship reported seeing a body floating around 20 miles or 32 kilometres northwest of San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge. It seemed that the body was clad in full-length denim trousers, which looked very similar to those of the Alcatraz prison uniform, but the body was viewed through binoculars and wasn't retrieved from the water, so no further confirmations of identity could be made. So, with all of the mystery, uncertainty and conflicting evidence in this case, what do I think happened? I rarely make such a definitive statement at the end of episodes about unsolved cases, but I think they survived. In my mind, with Frank Morris being the incredibly intelligent person that he was, I think both the escape from the prison building and the escape from the island itself were planned meticulously and carried out successfully. What I'm not sure about is how they left San Francisco, whether it was by boat or by car. Although there was a report from the time from a police officer named Robert Chechi of an unidentified boat near Alcatraz Island around 1am on the morning of the escape. The boat left the area near the rock and sailed away under the Golden Gate Bridge soon after, and although Robert Chechi's report was dismissed by the FBI, it seems quite compelling to me. In my heart, I feel that the alleged photo of the brothers in Brazil could be real, and it would make sense to me that they would have gone their separate ways from Frank Morris after the escape. Whilst it continues to become less and less likely that the men are still alive to this day, I just have this belief that their prison break was successful and that they did survive it. When Alcatraz prison closed the very next year in 1963, the total number of men who had attempted to escape stood at 36, with nearly all being unsuccessful. Could John, Clarence and Frank have been the ones to have beaten the odds? I have no doubt that that question will continue to be debated by true crime enthusiasts for many more years to come. Well, what a story. It is no exaggeration to say that this one has been on my list of podcast episode ideas since day one. It was actually going to be one of the first three episodes that I launched with, but I thought I'd save it for a little while and it's been fascinating to finally dive deeper into it. As with all of our Unsolved Mystery episodes, I cannot wait to find out what you think. Do you think all three men made it off the island? If so, what do you think they did next? 
I absolutely love chatting through the different theories with you all. So please do let me know where you land on this strange but true case. Before I remind you about all of the different ways to get in touch, it's time for one of my new favourite parts of every episode, our weird media feature. I'm actually mixing it up a little bit this week, as although my weird media recommendation is actually for the work of a filmmaker, it's not for anything that he's created for TV or for the big screen. Many of you will know of David Lynch as being the co-creator of Twin Peaks, which I absolutely adore, as well as films like Eraserhead and Mulholland Drive, amongst many others that he's directed. But today, I wanted to talk about his work as a painter and visual artist. Back in 2019, there was an incredible exhibition of his artwork at a place called Home, which is an amazing art centre in Manchester. I actually ended up going three or four times in the 18 or so days that it was on, as I felt like I missed something on each visit, and honestly, I could have gone a couple more times too. Much like his films, his paintings are completely surreal, and you never know what you're going to spot in one of them, even if you've previously looked at it multiple times. The first time I went, my friend Luke and I found ourselves tagging onto a tour, and the guide was explaining how David uses the most random items in his studio within his artwork, and you could definitely spot some incredibly weird things plastered onto the canvases if you looked closely. Each piece left you feeling totally different, and I remember even feeling a bit queasy at one point, so I can't deny that it was pretty powerful stuff. There were also some sculptures in the middle of the gallery too, and each piece was as enthralling as the last. I so wish I could walk around and see everything again. All of this is to say that if you ever find that any David Lynch art is being exhibited in your nearest city, I would massively recommend going to check it out. And if not, there are plenty of places you can view the works online too. Also, if you are a fellow David Lynch fan, I would love to know which of his on-screen delights are your favourites. I feel like everyone I speak to has a different one that they gravitate towards, so please feel free to share yours. Okay, time to shout out the sources that helped me with my research for today's episode. We have that fantastic history section of the FBI website, which had a brilliant article all about the case. The website alcatrazhistory.com, which was so thorough and had tons of information about the escape and the escapees. A 2022 article from The Independent by journalist Clemence Michelon, which was incredibly helpful. A piece from Britannica.com, newspaper clippings from the Aniston Star newspaper, as well as the Oakland Tribune, and those semi-redacted FBI documents which you can find on their website. A quick rundown of all the ways you can get in touch. You can find us on Facebook, we have both the main podcast page and then the much more fun and chatty private discussion group too. Just search Things Are About To Get Weird on there and you can request to join the private group. I try to check for new member requests every day, but if there's ever a delay with me letting you in, fear not, it's just because I've not checked that day and I will let you in as soon as possible. Over on Instagram, our handle is at 
Things Get Weird podcast and on Twitter it's at about to get weird. You can also pop me an email with any of your own strange stories or thoughts too. The address is thingsgetweirdpodcast at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, a quick rating or review wherever you listen is always hugely appreciated. I've spotted a few come in lately and they genuinely make my day, so thank you from the bottom of my heart. I think most podcast platforms have some kind of review or star rating system, so any love you're able to give the show wherever you listen is honestly fantastic. Until next time, take care of yourself and others and keep it weird, but the good kind of weird. Thank you.